And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Hold your applause. Shia. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm a writer for Grantland.com and on the other line in a La Quinta Inn watching Splendor in the Grass, it's Andy Greenwald! Rogue Nation! What's up, True Detective? Hey, oh, we're going in different directions. I, I know. saw a movie. I thought I know, we could talk no, about we that. Can, we, we have so much pop culture to talk about, so infinite amount of time because it's the internet and nobody cares how long we talk but we do like to try and keep <laughs> yeah. it keep it brief keep it like a, a subway commute or a ride we, to and from work we do sure that's my my mental projection of what we're doing okay uh nice. or you could say that this is an infinite dialogue between two friends whose friendship spans decades frankly i don't think our podcast begin or end it's all part of the same continuum that's right it's like uh the black crows chris robinson once said it's all one song <laughs> That is our best comp. That and this is song is called Rogue Nation. <laughs> Woo! Yo, we all saw Mission Impossible 5 uh, Rogue Nation this weekend. Andy and I like to talk about the movies from time to time. We will talk about True Detective. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about Mr. Robot, right? We're going to talk sure. maybe maybe we'll talk about some other shows that we watched on the TV. But I think we should start with a movie. I, I'm, I bet not everyone saw it, but the box office was robust. Yeah, it was. And I bet we can kind of talk about around it enough that people will be interested. Uh. I think we could talk about it, man. I don't. There, there's not like, it's not like I mean, the, it's not the crying game, you know. Let, let, <laughs> also, let's let's be honest, Chris. Neither of us went to a magic show this weekend, so <laughs> we don't have any of the other topics. So, um, Andy, so would you classify yourself as a as a true Mission Impossible head? Um, does anyone? Is that a thing? Apparently, like, is it, it is. Yeah, I apparently, mean, like, I think that this this franchise is really grown in the public's estimation over the last few years. Yes. Well, here. Here's the thing, and here's why. It, it is kind of the perfect franchise, and the only potential hitch in the armor, and we can talk about this later, is the the fact that the star, no matter what he does, cannot actually outrun time, and will eventually get too old <laughs> since it's all on his weirdly muscular shoulders. But here's why I think it's a, otherwise a perfect franchise, because it started out super classy, right? It was sort of a director's showcase. It could be molded by whoever was in charge, and would, you know, whichever director they brought in. So he went from De Palma to Wu to Abrams, that's, and then Brad Bird, very interesting mm-hmm. choices, all very distinct. But also because there really is nothing to it but hijinks and high nonsense, which is great. There is, it doesn't need to be an origin story. There doesn't even need to be a point. Just, we just need to get from breathtaking set piece to breathtaking set piece and with some jokes and some heists, and that's a recipe for fun. There's no problem with that, right? It's almost impossible to hate it. Yeah, it's... If, if I may. I, almost I, impossible. I think that Mission and Fast and Furious have both been uh, you know, lauded over the last few years, and I was trying to think about what, what could be behind that or what they might have in common, and... One thing that it's nice is that uh, cities don't get destroyed in those movies. Like, yeah, like they drive over some stuff and some the, the, stuff the, blows up in Fast and Furious. The, the, the Kremlin autopsy photo was kind of a jarring. You know what? Scratch my, scratch my analysis. <laughs> yeah, let's start this pot over. Yeah. Rogue Nation! <laughs> well, I guess I was just sort of thinking about, like, just in You're terms right, of... though. You're right. It, it's, okay, it's... so, like, he had, in the beginning of Rogue Nation, there, the Tom Cruise jumps, straps himself or tries to enter a plane while the plane is in flight. I'm sure you enjoyed that as a, as a flying aficionado. I am, but <laughs> I, was, I was more excited that you could, you could hack into a Russian satellite with an iPad. I'm sorry, a Microsoft mobile device. I liked... I, I was thinking about you when, I, when that first scene in the movie starts because I was wondering if that's how it feels for you to fly just, like, on JetBlue. It, it, 
Yes, that is how I experience all air travel with the added bonus of G-chatting with you. And you, you're usually providing the same low-level, you know, not-concerned banter that Renner and, and Peg were doing. And also detailed analysis of the plot of flight. <laughs> yeah, that's... You know, you're kind of in supporter. the part of the flight in flight where they turn over and knock into a church. Did we talk about this on the podcast where I was like, I will literally never see the film Flight because of what happens to the airplane? And you said, but he lands the plane. <laughs> he lands. He rolls it. Um, I Anyway, back to my point. A lot of summer fare, even though it is supposed to be, you know, light and fun and breezy entertainment comes with attendant apocalypses, you know, and, and with all due respect to the Kremlin, a lot of um, the world destroying in Mission Impossible remains hypothetical. It is it is headed off at the pass. Uh, Tom Cruise saves the world repeatedly, and it never gets to the point, with few exceptions, of, you know, oh, well, we lost half of Gotham, but, you know, we'll, we're going to we're going to see see another day. Also, they're always all they're doing is chasing after data. They're just always trying yeah, to get. It's always just like I need that hard drive. I need that knock list or yeah, whatever. Word. Like it, it's it's just that's really all it is. And I I kind of appreciated the way Christopher McQuarrie, who wrote and directed this film, gave a little tiny nod in the direction of just the the, the megalomaniacal sociopathic tendencies of Ethan Hunt. You know, yeah. basically being like, you just want to do it your way to win, and he's like. That's how we save friends and the alternate. Like, so the, the plus is you, you know, Simon Pegg gets to quip another week. The downside is you would give a global terrorist organization $200 billion. Right. That's, a, that's not really a coin flip. Sorry, Simon. Yeah, but, it's always awesome when he has, like, just, like, so you can just, like, transfer funds like that. Like, you, you may be a disavowed secret agent. <laughs> yo. But you have a TD bank login that you can just hit, I have, hit up Sean Harris with those, with those, with those numbers. I can't even get the homepage of my chosen bank provider to load in the time it took for him to take $50 million. That was incredible. Um, I also, can I, okay, here, let, we'll, we'll go big picture. I just want to say what I would really like. You know, sometimes the last few weeks we've been talking about, um, we talk about Game of Thrones, we talk about, like, how maybe some shows are worthy of a second screen experience or, like, a webisode series or something. Yeah, sure. I... I there are so many miniseries within this movie that I would like to have. And I, I'm going to give you three of them right now. <laughs> One is I would like B-roll footage of Tom Cruise actually memorizing the bank accounts for $200 billion in liquid I don't think that funds. would be that hard because he doesn't have that many more lines in this movie. No, I, but I'm saying you know that Cruise forced himself to learn that in, in the same way that he definitely can hold his breath for three and a half minutes. Like, he, he, he did this for us. Like, I think Wesley's... <laughs> review that ran last week was so good because it really is incredible the way tom cruise who our website just devoted a very interesting informative week to is just lashing himself for for i don't know for whose sins but he will do anything to entertain us and that's amazing including memorizing all that okay thing number two i'd really really be into you can tell me if you if you agree with me on this okay i just wanted i want a whole backstory or side story or mini series about the dude they call in Morocco, and, the, and then the list they give him of the things they want. And he's like, okay, I want like a, mach a 3D laser printer that makes perfect latex masks of people. <laughs> I want an armband that goes underwater that tells you how much oxygen is in your body. But yeah, by the way, but, a... but no metal. Can't have any metal in it. Right. So I don't know what we're making <laughs> the, the chips out of. <laughs> and just a long list. And he's like, okay, okay, I get this for you, my friend. I get this for you. 
Like, that would be amazing. Where is he getting it? That would be What cool. is the black market within the black market? Okay, three. What's the IMF clothing budget like? And, and where do they recommend their agents shop? Because the jump from... Tommy Bahamas, I think. Exactly. Exactly right. Tommy Cruise Bahamas. Because the <laughs> jump from Austria... Tommy Cruise Bahamas sounds like a great cruise line. I would definitely give them my vacation dollars. With the jump from Austria, where, where in the six months since he sort of grew a beard and didn't go to Cuba, Tom Cruise is apparently outfitted. It's just a small skiff with a, with a panic room with, <laughs> with voice-controlled monitors that just, like, just constantly scroll through images yeah. of, uh, of disgraced agents. But from that moment, he's like, there's a change of clothes for you in the bag. He doesn't know where they're going yet. And then the next time we see them... They are basically dressed like extras in the failed Matthew McConaughey movie, Sahara. <laughs> they are wearing these shirts with these crazy collars. And, and Cruz, like, he's like, I'm going to the desert. I need a really just, just rich, rich blue linen suit. It's pretty great. Um, I like, would also I- like to add on to, in terms of Mission Impossible spinoffs, an yeah. In the Loop slash Veep show about uh, Jeremy Renner and Alec Baldwin. Oh, my God, yes. Doing, like, bureaucratic Washington stuff and going to hearings and, and chastising each other for whose uh, clandestine agency has got more can, moral, has more I, moral superiority. Can I raise a question here? Sure. I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think they were taking the authority of that panel too seriously. No, I don't think so either. Those, I, those senators <laughs> did not seem like they had a lot of oversight. No, no, they did not. Like, honestly, if, do you... What do you think they told Renner that scene was? <laughs> like, they were I, probably like, watch the end of Lincoln. <laughs> exactly, exactly. This is Lincoln, you're Lee Pace, you're go. Like, you're Lee Pace. <laughs> you're I, Tim I, Blake Nelson. I have a lot of questions. Should we just... Well, okay, okay yeah, you know, my blah, only blah, other blah. miniseries that I would, like, yeah. like off, offshoot I would like to see is yeah. the, the interior life of the VRBO owner in Morocco who rented that place to Rebecca Ferguson. Yes. She's Great just like, point. I need a place that is inside of a grotto, you know, <laughs> but has a lovely, clearly, like, a freezing pool where I can test my, like, ability to jump into, a, like, a, a hydroelectric plant. Yeah, don't, I'll be spending most of my time submerged. But yeah. I'm sure, you know, but I still want it to be tasteful. I'd like some, uh, maybe some sandalwood candles, because you never know who's going to drop by. <laughs> I, did you know, how about their safe house in London? Or was it still, no, it was still in Morocco, I guess. Or maybe it was London. I don't know. I don't even know. Who cares? That's the whole point. It doesn't matter. But there's this scene when Renner, by the way, just really looking like REI business casual, with that, like, shearling button down with a high collar. He looked terrific, by the way. Um... He was when he's basically saying that you know Ethan, this is always the way it is with you, and he's raising his voice at weird times as if they like mash together six different cuts. Yeah, he is standing in front of these enormous, almost floor to ceiling windows, which don't seem like the best choice for a safe house. But two, maybe this is just because I watch too much TV. But I, that is the window you stand in front of when someone is about to gun you down. Um, yeah, I know. Seriously, it's also it, so you you were worried about like sniper action on Renner, like when he's. I was, I was worried about Renner's financial security for MI6, man. I would also like, like to, you know, I really, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole here, but just as now I'm thinking oh, about it. Oh, oh, we're going. What What about like a, a high fidelity sequel starring Tom Cruise and the record store girl? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Where Tom Cruise just walks around and being like, jazz. Look, I, that was a nice was little nod to his collateral character. Who's like, I love, ja- <laughs> I love Miles Davis. <laughs> I, this, it's a little early. 
for Mission Impossible 5 Rogue Nation or whatever it's called to supplant Rocky Horror Picture Show as a favorite in terms of like interactive cinema yeah. at midnight screenings around the country. However, and I, I just saw the film with a very vocal, vocal crowd in Brooklyn. And let me tell you, there is no one who's in the theater, not the gentleman enjoying the sandwich next to me. <laughs> Very, very fragrant. I believe it was sort of a, maybe it was a pastrami. It was a corned beef. It was corned. <laughs> it was mostly a slaw. Yeah. <laughs> it was, a it was, slaw no, was like with a, some bread, yeah. But it was like a bright vinegary slaw, not too much uh, mayonnaise. Right. Anyway, not from him, not the definitely, like, should not have been in this movie children who were in the theater as well. No one in the theater, there was not a soul in the theater who was not prepared to, to, to shout when the woman said, what kind of record are you looking for? Jazz! <laughs> There the was artists no other of Brooklyn need to go somewhere on a Monday, Monday afternoon. Yeah, they they shouted their masterpiece with me this morning. <laughs> let me tell you, they really did. Uh, they were that said, they were so enthusiastic about Rebecca Ferguson jumping on the Bone Doctor's back and putting a knife in his throat. <laughs> it's like it it was like the a balloon of like a balloon of tension had built in the theater, and they're all like, "Oh!" Yeah, the McQuarrie was like, "I got it." The Bone Doctor! <laughs> yeah. I, there are so many jokes that I'm going to save for HP After Dark. Just <laughs> about, like, who the Bone Doctor really is in Hollywood. But, um, do you think that if Tom Cruise died making this movie, they would still put it out? Yes. <laughs> yes. There's no question. And, except there, here's how it would end differently. That's not funny, but, like, to read Christopher McQuarrie interviews after, yeah. about this, it sounds like that was legit in play. Like, they were like, there's, like, yeah. you know, we would we would land a plane with the most, you know one of the most popular movie stars in the history of, of, of cinema strapped to the side of a plane. And yes. then that dude would be like, let's run it back. Can I just tell you how the movie would have ended, how it would have ended differently sure. if he had died? Renner would have finally gotten to take over? No, definitely not. <laughs> the movie would have ended the same way that it did with the Senate hearing and Baldwin and Renner walking out and Renner saying, you know, I guess we'll find out, Mr. Secretary. And except the only difference would be Baldwin would turn to him and say, yes, but now the world will always remember. And then he would turn to the window and they would gather around the window and you'd see the Washington Monument and you'd see the Lincoln Memorial. And then you would see a taller than the Washington Monument gold statue of Tom Cruise, like Michael Jackson history, like an album of just Tom Cruise with his eyes closed, with his arms bound behind his back. And And you know how like Kennedy has the eternal flame? Yeah. He would have an eternal circle of Rough Riders motorcyclists just going in a circle. <laughs> just gunning their engines. Yeah. How about, what, does, what does he say to Ferguson? Like, you really know how to ride. Just like Dean and it- Wah from Rough Riders being like, stop, drop. <laughs> do, you think, do you think Dragon would run the, secure, like, run the gift shop at yes. the memorial? Um, I want to talk, but here's the thing about the movie. It was... It was good. I mean, that's Did the Dragon thing. Did Dragon have an album called Hotter Than H2O? What was that album called? You're going to make me look this up? Yeah. yeah. It was called on, the it's, op- it's August. Look it up. It was called The Opposite of H2O. The Opposite. <laughs> Do you want... Spoiler. It's fire. <laughs> um, oh, Dragon. He's going to be on the Andy Greenwald podcast. <laughs> Carabition Dream Dragon. Chris. First yeah. of all, it's Bichet. Is How it really? I was wondering if that accent was real. Yeah, it's you're like Carrie Bish and Dragon. Like it's <laughs> Carrie Bichet and Dragon. Sorry. Here, here's here's the thing about the movie. Halt it was, and catch Dragon. It was very halt and catch the opposite of H two O. You mean? <laughs> it was very entertaining film, and it had enough of a through line that it was actually semi coherent. Like what they were doing was kind of nonsense, 
But the other ones, I like, I could not tell you anything about what three or four was about. It was and about this the rat's one, foot. and the other right, one was but, about the ghost protocol. But he, <laughs> yeah. and the other one was a, a clear-eyed look at what happens when the Kremlin explodes. That was the ghost protocol. Chris. Yeah. Um, the key thing, I think, I mean, the underwater stuff was really good. That was a very good action sequence. But the key thing really was Rebecca Ferguson because she is very good. I think it was really smart and they got very lucky because she, not only was she really good, it could hold the screen, but most people who hadn't seen the movie The White Queen had never seen her before. Right. The movie or a TV show, I don't even know what it was. Um, She's also good at jumping up on a dude's neck and stabbing him in the sternum. Which we're very relieved about. <laughs> whether, whether they are actually Although bone it ended doctors. The, the possibility of a bone doctor spinoff. Look, she doesn't discriminate. If it's a bone doctor, a bone homeopath, it doesn't matter. <laughs> a she holistic will, bone healer, yeah. She will jump on their bone necks, <laughs> neck bones. Um, but, but that whole thing of chasing after her and having her, she be kind of a person, marginally, was entertaining, I thought. You yeah. know, I, and. and the one frustration I've always had with the series is that if the whole conceit of it is that they have specialists from all over the world who could do lots of secret fun things. Uh-huh. Why we're, I mean, no disrespect to, to Ving and, and Renner and, and the squad, but I kind of wish always that there were more interesting people folded in. But this sort of became about Ethan, Ethan the lunatic and his only three friends. Yeah, I mean, this was such a stripped-down version. I think that it, 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 for those of you lucky enough to see Jack Reacher... Um, <laughs> Cruz's collaborations with uh, Christopher McQuarrie and Kevin Lincoln touched on this on a piece in Grayland tend to be very physical. Like there's just not a lot. I mean, you forget that this is a guy who would just deliver pages and pages of Aaron Sorkin dialogue and a few good men or, you know, communicate Cameron Crowe words, you know, Jerry Maguire. I mean, this guy is like a very capable, verbose actor who has largely become just like a physical specimen now. Oh, Cruz. Yeah. Yeah. And his, and his collaborations with McQuarrie tend to be, pretty um pretty stoic you know and so it would have helped i think and it did help to have simon Pegg and to have and have have the house flipper in the in the building um for this one but you know i i think that the problem with having a big supporting cast in mission impossible is that they usually all those people die they die or you can't keep track of them because yeah. it's, it's just too much I, right. I i i definitely agree with that so i think wasn't that jonathan criticism... reese myers in in one of these movies um yeah, probably. Yeah. Billy Crudup was. Billy Crudup, um, yeah. yeah. Sh- you know, shouts to Estevez for taking the L for the team in the first one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I... It's just funny, like, the way that it shook out. Again, they sort of solved the problem of Renner in this, because, and let's just, let's just run this back briefly, like, he was ostensibly hired, Renner, to basically have the torch passed to him, much like he was in the Bourne movies. We talk about this all the time, but that... And that was when... Ghost Protocol was like a big question mark because Tom Cruise was coming off of what many people in the industry thought was kind of a crazy period and he wasn't to be trusted. So they kind of were going to let him do this again, but they didn't. They wanted to hedge their bets so they could make them without him potentially. And then basically whether it happened on set or not on set, Cruise arrested the movie back from him so that that character of Brandt made no sense in Ghost Protocol. Yeah. I mean, can we, can we, we can say that, right? Like, sure. He was, he was his friend, his brother, his enemy, his son. His, uh, he just wasn't really anything. He was just a guy. Yeah, he was and like a double agent, but maybe he wasn't. But then he gets, you know, it's just unclear as to like what his the purpose of that and, character. Is. And so I thought McQuarrie did a pretty good job. Like, okay, he's just going to be that guy. He's going to be what Billy Crudup was in the third one, but not secretly a villain. Well, unfortunately for Jeremy Renner, he's basically Hawkeye in this movie. I mean, it's like that's three good lines and one action set piece. That's what I'm saying. So and he doesn't weird. even get to be. He was not even elevated to because you know how in like lots of action movies, if there's like a person and then they have a subordinate. 
that subordinate usually squares off against the villain subordinate. Yes. But that was Rebecca Ferguson, the, the lovely named Ilsa Faust uh, in this episode. So she, or this 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 entry, so she got to, to kill the Bone Doctor. Yeah, which was odd. Like, because it's, here's what I'm, here's all I'll say. Like, it's, I guess it's a luxury to have the guy in the suit who's trying to make things work out for you back home be a Oscar nominee. <laughs> Sure. Like and and nominal witch hunter slash action hero in his own right, like Renner. Yeah, it's just sort of a strange, strange thing for him. So he's perfectly pleasant. Like the thing about Renner in this movie, we joke about him quite a bit. Like we, I would say a good what twenty percent of our podcasts are about him. <laughs> so solid, solid, yeah. Uh, or, or or just about the field of house flipping in general. But you know, he's sort of the, <laughs> our the figurehead for that. Um, He's great on screen. I, I really love watching him, and he's sort of, you know, he always seems just one wrong word away from, from chaos or from reverting to the guy he was in the town. Yeah, uh, which is not a bad thing all the time. No, and so you sort of, you want that. Um, in this movie, though, he was a luxury. He was very pleasant to be in it. And there's just the one scene, though, where they lose um, Simon Pegg. They lose Benji. Yeah having decided to meet him in a train station and or meet Rebecca Ferguson in a train station and Cruz goes to chase after him and you see Renner still wearing that, sh- that shearling coat <laughs> try to do the, the jabby elbow sprint as fast as Cruz. I know. I know. Yeah. Like, he's, he's running, like running so after Clark Lewis. Yeah. He's trying so hard to beat him there just so he could beat him once. And Cruz would never let that happen. No, you can't. You can't outrun Cruz. Well, no, he, all right. he is. He is a special effect in this movie. It is funny. I mean, the, the the thing that came out of all the great pieces that we ran last week was was really, and I guess this is specifically what Mark Harris's piece was about, right? Like the different eras of his career. In this this later era, he is a special effect. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's he's a very good special effect, and and you know, the movie would could not exist without him in every possible sense. It's just. It's kind of amazing that Ethan Hunt, it wasn't the most interesting character 20 years ago, and now he's not even a character. He's just the engine. No, yeah, he's just he's just a, a like a stick figure that arrives in these incredibly well-constructed well, set pieces. He, he's the bullet you fire out of the, the, the oboe gun, or whatever innovation that was in the orchestra scene, uh, the, the opera scene. I think I said Clark Lewis. I meant Carl Lewis. That's just that I, kind I, of unvarnished... I thought Clark Lewis was like a friend of yours who ran fast. No, I'm kidding. Just like some, some pal he was, he was in the... Uh, the 86 uh, Pan Am Games, not, not, not the Olympics. Oh, <laughs> I see. Yeah, you were, you were, you were a pretty big devotee. <laughs> He's of sort of the dragon of track and field. <laughs> oh, I understand. It's, right, right. Um, hey, before we move on, let's take a break in today's podcast to talk about our sponsor, SeatGeek. It's the best way for fans to save money on sports and concert tickets. SeatGeek aggregates tickets from every major ticket site online and puts them all in one place to make comparison shopping for tickets easy. It's basically like Kayak.com for sports and concert tickets. SeatGeek also has technology called DealScore that calculates what every ticket in the building is worth. Good deals are represented as big green dots on the map, and bad deals are shown as small red dots. So it's easy to see at a glance which tickets will save you the most money. For a limited time only, use promo code HOLLYWOOD in the SeatGeek app or website and get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, to redeem your promo code and save $20, use HOLLYWOOD, like the name of our podcast, to save on your first SeatGeek purchase today. All right, man. Well, do you want to talk briefly about last night's True Detective? I do. I feel like it's our responsibility. I know that you liked this episode. Well... Yeah, I mean, let you know. Let's all let's all take a let's take a breath. Let's take a deep, deep swig of 
the actual H2O. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. Last last year, season one, I liked the penultimate episode the best too, and that was the episode that's where, insane that you say that. No, that was my favorite one Such because a crazy take. That's the, but it's true. It's, it's, it was how most, is it true? The, episode four is like one of the best episodes of television in the last like five years. It had a very showy last fifteen minutes. Yes, but the la- this, the second to last one was just like Rust and Marty doing cop stuff, and, and that you know. And the thing about Pizzolatto that I really believe, and I and I don't mean this lightly. I mean this is a serious compliment. Is that I think he can write a good cops and robbers show, but he doesn't seem to think that that's enough. And so it just becomes larded with all of these other things that that don't really balance out the scales. And so last night, when we generally stuck to, you know, flipping through pieces of paper, all those contracts with all those signatures, um, you know, people being in danger, people moving around, people checking stuff out, pieces coming together, you know, uh, Frank acting like a criminal, not just... Not- I, what what has he been doing? I was going to make a joke, but I don't even have a joke. Um, He's just like killing people like in public now. Well, now he is. Yeah, now yeah. everybody is, which is which is which is fine. Um, you know, so I, I I thought in the scheme of things, it was a it was probably the better best of episodes so far in a lot of ways. I thought the I thought the the Paul thing in below the House of Records was a good action scene sequence. That was that was fine. The scene with with Annie and her dad was good. Um, that was a good one. I mean, I know I'm really reaching here. <laughs> that was but... a cool scene of her admitting to being like abducted when she was a child. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know what I like to watch on a Sunday night. But <laughs> can we talk about? <laughs> can we talk about though? Like, here's the thing. Like, once Frank is doing stuff, okay, I get it. Frank's doing stuff now. But here's the indictment of the whole season: the six and a half episodes, six and a half hours it took for Frank to do stuff. In, hinged entirely on the emotional devastation wrought by the loss of Stan and the deep betrayal of Blake. Also, just how many times could he mention Ibar not being there to cover his poker Ibar shift? Yeah. Who's Ibar? I don't know. <laughs> there was just like a lot of like dudes. Like I had forgotten who Velcoro's boss, like who winds up. Uh, obviously, you're listening. You've seen the episode, but winds up killing Taylor Kitsch's character, Paul. Uh, I'd forgotten that guy's name, but they kept. I didn't, I didn't know who that guy was. What we we'd seen that guy before? Yeah, that's that's Velcoro's boss. The, the guy he, that came out. He from and the, the door? and the Vinci chief of police were the two guys who robbed the diamonds. Oh in yeah, yeah, yeah. That, okay, you're right. You're right. Yeah. No, so it's all come together. You, you yeah, see, oh man, it's just, it's just I can't even see the whole picture yet. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about my favorite scene in maybe the entire series? Uh, my, sure. My my favorite scene in maybe the whole series is when he's like. Uh, Frank, Mrs. Semyon's coming. She's like, he's like, let her see this. <laughs> that that reminded me. It's the true detective version of the, the taking the plums to market scene yes, in Eastbound. It's exactly right. Let, let the boy watch. Let Gabriel, my son, see what I've done to Blake. <laughs> this is, uh, for people who know oh what we're talking about, God, just if... please, please go to YouTube, Google Eastbound and Down season one outtakes. Just go to the Ashley Schaefer BMW thing about Gabriel and the plums. We'll wait. Pause this. That's much better. It's like seven minutes long. And if you ever, you know, have me trapped in a room and want to see me start crying, just play me that scene. And if you ever want to see trap me in a room and see me start crying, just play me true detective season two. Um, here's a couple of notes that I have about this show. I, I am now at the point with the tinfoil hat stuff. I th- a couple weeks ago, I think I mentioned that 
I read a Taylor Kitchen interview where he meant he said that um, he was upset that he had only really gotten to shoot with Colin Farrell for a very limited amount of time, and that the scene between him and and Farrell in in Velcoro's car where Kitch starts crying um, before he gets kind of like jumped by the press at his hotel. Oh yeah, yeah, was, was like the only scene he had really shot with Colin Farrell. And so that got me kind of thinking, and I was watching last night's episode, and I have to admit, I am not entirely sure if those actors are in the same room when the scenes are being shot. And I don't mean like Rachel McAdams is in her trailer while they're doing a close-up of Colin Farrell. I mean, I thought I even saw a green screen a couple of times last night. Hmm. And um, there's something about those two shots that they do where the two people are sitting across each other. From each other from table. at a table, yeah, yeah, that could very easily be split screened. Yeah, it's true. I know this is crazy, but the reason why I think that this is a persistent sort of worry or or, or observation of mine is that they often don't seem like they are acting in the same room together. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of disconnect between uh, performances, but also even like an awareness of of what is going on in the world, and that's compounded by the fact that. The direction, and I don't, no, no disrespect to Daniel Atias, who's done really good work in the past. There's just bad storytelling going on, and that yes. that story gets in that when you have a, a plot that's so complicated, you can't have Taylor Kitsch start to run away from gunfire, and then cut to a five minute long monosyllabic conversation between Rachel McAdams and Colin Farrell. That's not how like storytelling works. I'm not trying to be like very catholic in my tastes but you run away from gunfire you got to see where the guy goes and see if they catch him just just in terms of being yeah able to there's track no things. there's no actual they're not you're not juxtapo- juxtaposing uh coherent emotions when you're cutting back and forth between two people being like i'm not a bad man i am a bad no, man you know and no Kitch yeah, and he running was like, down do you, the tunnel and he's like do you remember and she's like what and he's like anything or do you miss it Anything? What was that? That was. Strange. I didn't understand that. Like I, it, it, I mean, and and that that I, I understand like what is going on there with like two broken people who are trying to put themselves back together with each other uh, or find salvation in each other, but there is a an abandonment of personal character like, of character going on where they have forced these people to show up in scene after scene after scene to say men of influence rail corridor yeah, yeah. diamonds and they just keep talking about this stuff and it's so much tell and no show yes and meanwhile a couple of pretty compelling pe- interesting characters like rachel mcadams is this daughter of this new age uh like quasi-religious figure and paul is a veteran who has ptsd probably like he had these scars we don't know how he got those scars you know he's um, gay, but you know living in denial about that. And you've got Velcoro has obviously just got some incredible fatherhood techniques going on. All these people have interesting stories, but those stories kind of got abandoned for this this sort of late yep. hail mary attempt to tie together all crime in California for the last thirty years. Yeah, yeah, and, and and it gets and it it. I think the abandonment of character is is key here. I mean, I, I can't even tell. It feels like three years ago when there was a bird mask and the guy shooting Velcoro but yeah. not killing him. Like I don't. Okay, that 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 doesn't seem to have added up to much of anything. But the abandonment of character on all levels because 
you know, the mayor Chazani showed up again last night. Richie Coster, the actor, is terrific. Apparently, apparently, the mayor's son is like the, one of the puppet masters of this entire season. And we've only and he's met been him in once. one scene. Yeah, and he was great in that scene. Sure, I really, but I like, really like why that. not have him in all the scenes? You know, I mean, well, he should be one of the villains. Y- you can't take screen time away from Blake. You can't take <laughs> you, you, you can't take screen time away from Mrs. Semyon. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, here's we the thing: can't cut that, away from our our, our in memoriam for Stan. That scene, with scene with Frank and and Frank and the Misses, what blew my mind about that scene is that I think that the writer intended it to be romantic. Oh, you the know, one which, between uh, Frank and where they was like, yeah, with like. And remember, we we were just told that Blake had voided himself before dying <laughs> violently on the floor. I like how he says that as an insult. You just shot him in the stomach. Yeah, what was he supposed He's to like, do? And now you pooped yourself on the floor. <laughs> and it's like, well, you did blow his intestines out of his back. Yeah, it wasn't just right. It was it wasn't unprompted. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about Frank going to a travel agent? I really like that. I think if there's one <laughs> she thing, she was like, "You're gonna love Venezuela." No, no, he was like. My friends that I'm sending to Venezuela. Right. She's like, what a kind it's thing. It's super easy for a- to buy plane tickets for other people without having like their identification. I often gift good, <laughs> close friends. You I know, like to fly out of a third airport. <laughs> unstructured, refundable tickets to Venezuela. <laughs> at, at, with our friend, at, you know, Jessica at Liberty Travel. <laughs> She's always ready for me. Uh, yeah, they're, I, they're, they're just these things. But, you know, we're laughing, and uh, <laughs> as we should. But... I, here's something that I've been thinking a lot about um, this weekend. Sure, Stan. No, no, it was not. Um, Blake. Just how much <laughs> Blake? Just all these one name people. Ivar. No, Chris. Um, it's just. It's it's not the, the freedom that TV offers writers and creators is potentially a double edged sword because it, the ability to tell a story in whatever shape it takes or however much time you need can really cause problems if you don't know or don't spend much time thinking about how much time or how much focus a particular story needs. And so this second season of True Detective, I will continue to say, and I think you'd agree with me, there is something there worth telling. Mm -hmm. There is something around this worth telling. It was probably better served as a two-hour movie or a four-hour miniseries. Uh, it was not an eight-hour series. Our buddy series. Dan Pfeiffer actually just tweeted today in, in about uh, the show. He was like, this is a 1,300-page James Elroy novel that's been smashed into like an eight-hour show, to paraphrase yeah. Dan. And that's, well, that's I, pretty I, accurate. I mean, like, I actually would say the opposite. I think it's a 50-page James Elroy novel stretched into eight hours. I mean, you I know, think you could have had... 60 pages version. about the riots. You could have had yeah. 100 pages about the various yes. uh, hedonistic New Age things. You could have hundreds of pages about Santa Muerte and, and, and rail development and land grabs and all this other stuff. These references that they make sort of offhandedly to dumping toxic waste in the Central Valley or whatever. Yeah. It's just not – it just never clicked. And I, I really, really, really like admire the project and I still have some admiration I really do have admiration for what Pizzolatto is trying to do, believe it or not. But I hope that if they do a season three, that they return to the balance that they found. There was something about the way that Fukunaga t- told that first story that emphasized the s- simplicity. And for as much as well, people got involved with the Yellow King and some of the conspiracy theories there, I thought that it basically told a very simple story about two people. Yes, but I being you know more negative about the first season than you i would say the opposite i would say fukunaga gets a lot of credit for muddying the frame 
with the stuff that people really responded to with the yellow king stuff with the the, the spiritual metaphysical and elements that sort of distracted from the simplicity of the story without that I think for whatever reason, whether he felt the need to impress or whether he felt the pressure, whether he didn't have enough time to or, or wouldn't allow an editor to be there, Pizzolatto just added way, 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 way too much um, from, what's, from what actually should be a rather simple story. I mean, this is, the, this is the thing. There is no shame in making a good cops and robbers story with great actors and with a high budget. You know, I, I would love to be able to watch more stories like that. I, I don't mind that Velcoro and and Bezerides are now romantic soulmates because that's what a you know a, a Hollywood movie would do. That's okay. These tropes are there to be played with for a reason. You <laughs> it's know? so weird it's just, when they cut back and they were like hugging. They were just deep hugging, <laughs> um, deep motel hugs. Uh, last question about it. I was watching last night thinking about um, something I had forgotten, which is that the part was pretty clearly written for Elizabeth Moss. She was the one that they wanted for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she wisely didn't take it, but it's in, been interesting to watch. To, it's a sort of an interesting thought exercise to imagine her in the role because she's such a different performer. And I, I've actually come down. I love Elizabeth Moss and everything she's done, so I'm sure she would have done a fantastic job. But I kind of have really come to like McAdams in it because sure. she is she's such a she. She kind of is playing the part like she's playing one of those knives she keeps in her boots yeah she's, she's definitely she's, going somewhere with it she's all serrated edges and it's all very much on the surface but it's that's kind of necessary particularly in a story that is as just muddy and murky as this but also when you're playing against Farrell, who ever since he lost his mustache has kind of lost his mojo i mean we you know we love him i love him as an actor and i'm happy to watch him do this but he hasn't had much to do to be honest you know i don't i think he's sort of lost the Ever since that scene... His job in this show is to walk into different rooms and tell people things. I mean, that's what now, everybody's job in this show is. Well, but prior to that, he had that... You know, he found the through line in those first four episodes with the stuff about his son. Yeah. And then the moment where he found out that he killed the wrong guy and everything that happened. And then from that point on, yeah, he just, people just walk around and they wave pieces of paper and say, this is a signed contract. And this is... The, you know, it's, it's all... In, it's just indicating. So, yeah. All right. Well, we have one more week. Do you think week. there's going to be another season of this? No. Really? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I think that... Because I he how, doesn't want to make one or because they're just going to cut their loss? I mean, like, why would... It seems I, I, like there's still two million people watching this live. I it's still talked about. I think there's going to be something that's going to allow everybody to come out looking okay. I think that Pizzolatto has a deal with HBO, so I think he's going to make more TV shows for them. But I think that something is going to happen, and whether it's he doesn't want to do it again because it's too much pressure, it's too much whatever, which is you know, certainly understandable... Or HBO says we can do it again, but here's how we're going to do it. And we're going to have a room and we're going to have, you know, a, a deputy in there or someone in over you. And he says, absolutely not. Do you, so you um, think that this year was like he got all the, the house money to play with? Yes. And so and that's what we're seeing is is what happens when you give this guy because it was I, the reason I was yes. thinking about it was was what, reading some of the reports from the TCAs this weekend that Michael Lombardo, who who runs HBO was basically like saying that the two David Fincher shows that they have are, are, are not going well. Uh, one is, uh, Utopia. Yeah. Utopia, like the people have been released from their contracts. 
Oh, I didn't um, know that. I yeah, didn't even see and that then news. with video synchronicity, I think that they're having issues with the the budget or something like that, and that Fincher's obviously just got a very full plate. But it, neither show sounds like they're going in. Oh, I didn't know that about Utopia. That's interesting. Yeah, going great guns, and and that's not uncommon for HBO to get pretty far into a, a an engagement process with a, a show and then break it off before the actual wedding. Um, but I was just kind of wondering about like this it, when once they establish project prop. Uh, like a brand of a show, it, they seem loath, like most networks, to let it go. I, I agree. I still I think agree. that there are a few locations that they could do a true detective in if they wanted to move around a little bit more. Well, and the as you the, the most important point that you made is that the ratings are good. Right, they are absolutely good. Like I'm 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 out here beating a drum for a renewal for Halt and Catch Fire, and Halt and Catch Fire was averaging maybe just under half a million viewers for this second season. Right, True Detective with with initial viewings, and of course HBO runs things again and again, and then it's on HBO Go and HBO Now, was up close to 3 million. So that's really good. And But but here's the other thing that, that, that makes it, you know, that muddies that conversation a little bit. HBO cares as much about the conversation as it does about the ratings. Yeah. Um, and the conversation, they absolutely know the conversation has turned. I don't know whether it's... I, all I can do is say anecdotally from people I've spoken to within the industry who are not affiliated with the show, it is not kind of become a, a joke as well and right. people within the industry are hate watching it and part of that of course is jealousy and part of that is gunning for Pizzolatto because he put the big target on his back with stuff like that Vanity Fair interview um, but that also means that a bunch of powerful agents and agencies might not be saying have whoever you want in our litter of stars because you are a, you know you are a, a magician well I think that next if I just, just to, to touch back again about that bit I, I said about whether or not people are in the same rooms together and I kind of wonder this is completely speculative, but when you go for four huge stars like this, I mean, McConaughey, when he takes True Detective, is a big deal, but that was, like, in the midst of the McConaughey It wasn't, you know what I mean? Like, he, he that was one of the, the steps to his sort of career rebuilding, along with yeah. Dallas Buyers, which was another pretty small budget thing that nobody saw coming. Um, with this, I wonder whether or not, it's like, you can't just have Vince Vaughn Colin Farrell, Richard McAdams, and Taylor Kitsch available for the same time for nine weeks or however long it takes you to shoot this series, you know? And working with these big people, with this many big people, you're going to run into the little things like scheduling and get, getting everybody in the same room together might prove to be difficult. So I wonder whether it would almost be easier or smarter if instead of next time you're using a, of a Vince Vaughn, you use a Ben Mendelsohn, you know? Uh, I think... To do that would be really to reveal how little clothes the Emperor has. Because if you, this season, you know, I, I'm, I'm not even going to get into the first season because I'm absolutely in the minority about the opinion on that. But if, if you didn't have big stars in this season of the show, what, what would you have? I don't know. You might have actors who knew the parts better. I mean, who, who read the parts in a different way. I don't mean knew the parts better. Like God, they, they would have a lot parts. to read, though. But I'm no, like, I, can you imagine how much different Frank Samian is if, if it's Ben Mendelsohn instead of Vince Vaughn? It would be better. I yeah. mean, that, that's just a misfire. Like, uh, that's not even criticizing Pizzolatto for his writing. I'm not even criticizing Vince Vaughn. He's, I mean, like, he's clearly... Th I don't know how much... You know, I, I, I think that he did... He made a choice, like, in terms of the performance he's done, and he's stuck with that choice. Uh, it's just... Yeah, he's, he's working very hard. Yeah. But to uh, me, like, watching Frank with Osip last night, I was like, Frank should be, like, short and, and an, a mutt. You know, he should be a guy who tried to... Tried to get up at, to yes. level up and got his nose slapped for it. He should he should look like Chizani. I mean, basically, yeah, basically, uh, he, he, 
he, he nobody's he gonna a, believe that some like six foot five movie star is having like the this kind of like rough go of it you know right right or, or that everything about him is invented you know like the, the the trophy wife and the the aspirations to going straight and finer things like vince vaughn you're it's a really good point vince vaughn walks into those rooms like he owns them because he looks like he does yeah um it's interesting i mean i i, I could be very much wrong about a third season hbo does not like to admit mistakes they like to keep and if and if other dramas are falling out, they definitely need to keep something going. He said that he was like, I can't see it going more than three. I I would have to imagine if the conventional wisdom is that two was somewhat of a misstep. If you were him, maybe you'd want to do three to be like to as a as a like to kind of correct course and it, show it, what you can do with different right. tools. But at the very least, if I were him, I would say, uh, but I need eighteen months. Like I need to not. I mean, whatever decision has been made has already been made, and we just don't know about it yet. That's yeah. one thing to say. Yeah, but yeah. two, he would just maybe need more time, and maybe HBO doesn't want to do that because they would then have another giant hole in their schedule. Well, it'll be interesting to see after next week if he does any any sort of Q and A's with people. Um, uh, my guess, my guess is that he won't. But uh, I, obviously, he wasn't going to do one with right? us. Um, I don't know what he has to do. I mean, I mean, I, I don't. He has been completely silent, which is probably the best thing to do anyway, whether the show is going well or, or not. But I don't know. It's interesting. Um, where did Were you able to watch any Halt? Or you were busy last night? Right? I watched were... I like watched the second one. I, I mean, I watched the, the final episode. Uh, yeah. It didn't really make much of an impact on me without having really kept up with the season. But... Um, what do you? I, I guess continue off the conversation we just had. What do you think its prospects are for a third season renewal? Because I, I didn't very, feel like it obviously yeah. ended with a lot of open. open yeah, it, it, the second season we're not going to spoil anything because you know not that many people have watched it, but it, it definitely does not end in a place that people who are into the show would be satisfied. It ends basically almost in a place where it could reboot again as a completely different show, or at least you know uh, an expansion of the great show that it's become. Uh, I think that the odds are very very poor. Okay. that it's going to get renewed. I think the, the ratings have been truly bad. Um, I think that it's very, very hard to change the conversation. I think that's one thing that we've learned about this is like the, one of the things about TV that's always been very appealing to me. And I think to a lot of people is that it's a forgiving medium. Like you can find the show, you know, you can, you can improve things. You really have the opportunity to, 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 to just basically move your stakes to something that's working. Yeah. Um, the problem is we don't really give shows time to do that anymore. It's just too cutthroat. So people checked out the first season, and then they checked out because, you know, it remains a buyer's market. So, you know, as this is the same thing that happened with another show, I Love the Bridge, where, like, FX was really, really happy with this, the way the second season improved. I was certainly really happy with the way the second season improved, but they did their internal number crunching and looked at the metrics, and it wasn't... It was that people already had, a, had made up their minds. It wasn't that people who liked it didn't like it. It's that they didn't see enough people who hadn't formed an opinion yet. Right, because you're looking for basically a, a kind of... Your your ideal is, like, if something isn't catch-on when it first is released, it's going to have some sort of Breaking Bad-esque... Right. And, you know, and, and here, late here's breaking thing. fire, right? I don't know if that's even possible anymore. Because here's the thing about Hold and Catch Fire. it it It's so good now and so confident. And this is something I cut out of my piece, but I'd like to explore in a different way at another point. Um if you really think about what makes a TV show good or potentially great, a series, is that it kind of has to be built like a boat. Like, it has to be it has to be wide. It has to be something that has the structure to withstand lots of story, but also, like, the unpredictability of characters who exhibit real emotions. And finding that correct 
well-built vehicle is really rare, especially from the beginning. If you look at something like Mad Men, it was the it was so perfectly designed because no matter what Weiner threw into it, whether it was like demons from his own subconscious or historical cliffs notes from the sixties, the show could support that. Yeah. It could do comedy. It could do drama, pathos, anything. It could do all of it. And halt is suddenly in a place where it can be that show. It's not just about the eighties or about com- computing. It's about these people. It's about inventing the future. You know, it's really exciting what it could be. And shows like that with cast this good don't come along very often, but you know, and if it kept going and AMC was able to sort of move the money around, if they suddenly had four seasons on Netflix, I bet people would really dig them. But for as much as that sounds like the TV, the way we watch TV, the economics are not set up to support that. So I would be very surprised. Um, I'm going to say this about the show. I think that my I think I'm trying to figure out like why this never really caught on to me for me. And part of it might be that when it comes to hour long cable dramas, pretty good which which is kind of what i think of that show doesn't tend to keep my attention if that makes sense do you know what i yeah. mean like like yeah. a, i I, I, don't I, enjoy, I don't think you're alone yeah and I, and i i would i would apply that to like a lot of of different shows it's not in any kind of like shot at halt and catch fire um i was thinking about it in comparison to mr robot because there's yeah. um the most recent episode of mr robot which I, um i'm almost reticent to talk too deeply about because i want people to watch this show so badly that I want to encourage them to do it, but I don't want to spoil anything that happens on it. But the first uh, 40 minutes of that episode are more or less a procedural. You know, it's like it was like a very it was like the the USA version of that story where there's like a, a heist. This guy basically has to execute against his own will. Um, and he thinks he's doing the right thing. And it winds up that he's doing the wrong thing. It, it was Breaking Badish. Um, it was Breaking Badish in the sense that this show is like as gripping as Breaking Bad, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was also this this episode was uh, was written um, and directed, I think, by was it directed by somebody else besides the the girl with the yes, dragon? Yes, it was direct. I believe this was directed by the woman whose name I'm blanking on. I'm going to look it up right now since I'm recording. Is it Deborah Moss? Studio. Is that the name? No, it's the woman who directed the episodes of Transparent that Jill Soloway didn't. Okay. Yeah, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, well, she crushed it because the last three minutes of this last episode are so incredible. They're like Game of Thrones thrilling. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm just double checking this, but I believe it's uh, uh, Nisha Ganatra. That's her name. I know she directed. Wait, I'm actually going to look. I'm actually. This is this is exciting. This is a summer episode. Yeah. Uh, no, you were right. Deborah Chow directed this. Deborah Chow. Okay. So I'm sorry, Nisha Ganatra directed two episodes ago. Good job by her, and we didn't mention at the time, but Deborah Chow directed this, and she is a filmmaker who directed the feature film The High Cost of Living. Okay. She's uh, from our neighbor to the north, Canada. Nice. Well, she brought some maple leaf sensibility to this one. Uh, you know, deaths of characters have become commodities because, you know, I think that that, like, along with coupling killing off a character is is one of the sort of like the cards that a show can play and in this day and age when people play a lot of their cards very early in their hand right because they want to they want to get eyeballs and they want to get attention yep that can become kind of cheap um i even thought it was a little cheap the way that kind of happened on true detective i just thought that character didn't really go anywhere (laughs) you know um the, the the person who loses who dies on True Detect on Mr. Robot and the way it happens is is just not like anything I've seen in Ugh, a while. It was rough. 
It was really upsetting. The sound design on that, that the last three minutes is, it's just like this cacophonous, loud keyboard drone. Yeah. Well, it, it's also the way that this, the, the way that we've bought into the highly stylized universe so that they are now able to play with it like a painter. Yeah. So we, we, we are so fluent in the language of the Mr. Robot universe that the fact that Elliot is just standing there while a high stakes prison break is going on behind him. Yeah doesn't bother us yeah. because we know the type of show we're watching. We're not sitting here going run, run. I mean, part of us is always going to be saying run, run, run. And that's the way, you know, filmmaking works, but we get that that's just background noise to what he's experiencing. And yeah, what actually happens to this character who I've come to like quite a bit was devastating, particularly because of the way that character appears in the episode in the beginning. The first scene of the episode is really, really amazing. Really well done. Really surprising considering where it ends up. Um, Here's the thing. Uh, we don't have that many episodes left. It's a 10-episode first season, which I wasn't sure of. Um, so it's like four episodes left? Yeah, there are four. There's, there's one this week. We're recording on Monday, and yeah, then that's it. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's my favorite thing on television right now. I, just, I can't speak highly enough of this thing. And every week, there's something to love. Like every week where I'm like, ah, there probably has to be a down week this week, right? Like there, this, this probably has to be pretty chill this week. It just keeps getting – it just keeps ramping up, man. Were you a? Uh, this is a little bit of a sideways thing. Did you like Fargo? Did we? Did we talk about that on the show? I don't even remember. Uh, we talked about it. I, I think I really enjoyed the second half of it. Yeah, me too. Thought it started a little slow. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with the, the next. Yeah, did one. you see? Did you see the trailer? I did. Yeah, it's a great trailer. Sure. I, I know that doesn't really matter because it's a trailer, but it's a great trailer for TV. Yeah, they got it, great people in it. I'm, I'm really excited to see what what they do with it. It's like uh, the idea of these expanding universes on television. I mean, we were just joking about Mission Impossible side universes earlier in the episode, and that's exactly what, what they've done with Fargo. Yeah, but it's also, it, it's really, it, I'm sort of done comparing Fargo and True Detective, but it is, it's instructive. <laughs> but let, let but I'm about to, to that, yeah. No, but it's instructive because you see what's repeatable, you know, yeah. it, and, and I think that, you know, Pizzolatto's ambition um, outstrips what noah hawley is doing in fargo there's no question about that um and i mean that genuinely not not even as a like a secret shade but but what hawley has in the you know in the coen brothers tone and then what he the way he was able to extrapolate it is real is repeatable with great cast you know and i watched that trailer and i was like oh i want to i want to go back there which yeah. is kind of essentially what tv always is right it's like and, and i'll even say mr robots like that as soon as you know you you see those the, the the chilly color palette, or you hear um, Rami Malek's voice. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm back here. I yeah, like being it's, here. It's 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 sort of like it's just all about world creation and those things. Yeah, and and when the season of True Detective starts, it just it's a I, it's kind of a groan. Like it, I don't want to go back to that place. And and I think it that does sound kind of um, you know maybe a little lowbrow or or, or I don't know, but it. it it just it kind of TV still has to grab you on that level, and and to say to go back to what you said about Halt and Catch Fire, you're absolutely right that it is not as uh, it doesn't grab you. Yeah. It, but one of the reasons why I loved it so much is that it was you know maybe this is reflective of how much TV I have to watch, but I loved going back to it. I loved having the season to sort of relax into because I was so enjoyed being with those characters and watching them think and feel and interact. I kind of, I mean, I, I dare say that I wonder whether or not part of the reason why I show like Halt and Catch Fire is a critical darling, but maybe it didn't catch on mm-hmm, in a wider way. Mm-hmm. It's because critics are kind of forced to watch a lot of television and really well done television might be a much, a very refreshing thing. Whereas for someone who's just like casual viewer who has 
six hours of TV in them a week or whatever, eight hours of TV in them a week, it it can be a little bit more like, you know, like if this isn't like or, dynamite, I'm not going to keep watching it. No, you're right. But also what if you're a casual TV viewer, but you're also, it's, there's nothing casual about it anymore. And to actually yeah. Yeah, yeah. remember that you have it on your DVR. That, oh, it's that another week's past. Oh, I got my show. Yeah. You yeah. kind of have to keep it on the front part of your brain. Whereas that's probably why Halt would ultimately will work better on Netflix, whether it's just two seasons. I heard, I was listening anymore. randomly to, that has nothing to do with television. I was listening to a soccer podcast, or not even a soccer podcast, I was listening. <laughs> you, you weren't listening to anything. Well, it was, was another <laughs> podcast, and they were talking about um, Daredevil, and they were like, it, the way that shows will pile up on your DVR or in your streaming service now yes. is so overwhelming that sometimes like these shows are just going to... It's The window is so weird now. I don't even know when I'm supposed to watch this stuff. I, yes. No, I know. Um, well, I, I don't think it... You know, it, it's interesting. W- one thing that um, that's coming out of... of of TC, it's coming out of the TCA and the TV Critics Press Tour when the networks are promoting their stuff. But it's also been quite clear in the way that the, the, the networks have interacted with me is that Netflix and Amazon are playing the game of TV, but they don't care when you watch it. Yeah. They don't. They don't care when or how you watch it, and that's fine. That's totally fine. But they do not care. Like, as long as, you know, they, they want there to be a spike when, when Daredevil drops, or, you know, and that's why they're in business with Marvel, because it gets people excited. It gets that first week box office. But it doesn't matter. They're building. They're building the, the pantry. And as long as it's there, that's really, that's all that matters. And, and the networks can't really compete with that. Well, I'm stuffed. You, pantry. Ex- well, that's right. I know. And, like... If you look at what, like, Brian, we haven't even talked about Hannibal, and I have not kept up this season, and it's been canceled, and it probably isn't going to go forward past the season. And if you look at what Brian Fuller is doing with that cast and that point of view and that level of intricate storytelling with material that people love, it's incredible, and he should be given money to complete it, because that is something. If he was able to do the entire story, we talked about this, you know, a year ago, his goal was to do the Hannibal Lecter story from before Red Dragon through the books. Yeah through the movies that we've already seen, like, tell this all the way through. People would love that. You know, people 10 years from now on, on Amazon or Netflix or, you know, or Hulu Space or whatever exists then, <laughs> people, people want this. Yeah. But the economics of the moment are not going to allow it to continue, and that's kind of interesting. Well, we'll be back uh, next week to talk about the final episode of True Detective and other stuff. And tell, tell the people what you told me about the final episode of True Detective. It's 90 Chris. minutes. Woo! <laughs> Rogue Nation! <laughs> See you later. Great job, Baranski! Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.